Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. In Boston, it was Patrick. In L.A., it was Steve. In St. Louis, it started out as Travis, but then he got picked up on an outstanding bench warrant and was replaced by Mike. This program features the work of 2013 writer Jay McAleer. He spoke with curator Stephanie Kalis about his work. I'm really fascinated by by moments that break us out of our patterns, whether that's a really tremendously happy moment that kind of shatters that construct or if it's a really tragic one. In some ways, the result is the same in that the world kind of opens up for you. It ceases to be about an existence that you think you understand, and it becomes this exposure to just this majestic expanse that you really don't, you could never possibly grasp. And, and I think that that's a really, really powerful experience. Could you talk about that in terms of the character that you're building at the center of your novel? Yeah. So, the, you know, the character is actually a stagehand who's on tour and he's approaching the end of his time with his tour and he's been out on the road for a couple of years. And so he's bought a car. His last stop is Seattle. He's the, the tour is continuing on without him. And he meets a young girl in Seattle, and there's kind of this flirtatious thing going on, and they get in an accident, and she's killed. And he's kind of stranded here trying to piece, not only piece his life together, but also there's this shared experience with this person who he didn't really know very well. It's still really devastating. But there's a weird guilt there. You don't have the right to claim that grief. And so I think that's... That's part of what's going on as well. Now we'll hear a selection from Jay's live reading. Tonight I'm going to read an excerpt from a novel that I'm currently working on titled Delicate Strangers. Uh, the section I'll be reading is from the beginning of the novel. Um, the protagonist, Robert, uh, has been out on tour with a Broadway production uh, for about a year, and he's coming up uh, to his last day with that show. <clears throat> Delicate Strangers. The routine was always the same. The only thing that ever changed was the city, and after a while, even that didn't make much of a difference. Each afternoon, Robert walked through the stage door, up a ramp or stairway, down a hall, or through a loading dock until he was backstage left, looking at the row of lighting booms and the phony car that rolled on stage during Act Two, Scene Four. He checked the prop table, quickly scanning the surface to make sure that nothing was out of place. Each item had its own square of blue tape around it, the tape clearly labeled with the name of each prop. Dexter's cigarettes, Dexter's lighter, Molly's coffee cup, Deirdre's sunglasses. There was a square at the front of the table labeled roses next to another one that simply said fans. Each of these had a large arrow inside it, also made out of blue tape, which pointed to the edge of the table and indicated two milk crates that were stored on the floor. One full of fake roses, the other containing a dozen fans that were used in one of the dance numbers. Along the back of the table, there was Inspector's magnifying glass, the three open spaces for the pistols that were still locked up in the safe, and today, once again, the empty square where Danny's flask was supposed to be. The actor that played Danny, a 35-year-old man named Jeffrey, who replaced the original Danny three months into the tour, was notorious for taking this prop back to the dressing room with him. Robert didn't say anything. He sat down and waited for Kyle, his own replacement, to show up. He'd been training Kyle for two weeks, and now it was his turn to run the show. 
He'd let him mention it to Kimmy, let them develop their own routine of jokes about what a pain in the ass Jeffrey could be. Sometimes, after his pre-show check, Robert would walk out to the edge of the proscenium and stare into the vacant auditorium, at the 2,000 or so empty seats, and think about how they would soon be full of total strangers, people whose lives he knew nothing about. Or instead, he would wander around backstage chatting with the local stagehands, people who, up until a few days earlier, had been strangers themselves. Erin, the woman from the local crew who'd been assigned to props, strolled in early as usual. She dressed like everyone else backstage, black jeans, black t-shirt, but it didn't matter. She still looked hot. He'd been hitting on her pretty solidly for the first two days of the load-in before she finally told him flat out that she never dated anyone she worked with. When she came over, she pointed at the empty spot where the flask was supposed to be and said, What the fuck? Isn't that like the third time this week? Fourth, Robert said. I think he does it on purpose just to annoy me. Does it, she asked. Not anymore. It's Kyle's problem now. There was a small piece of gaff tape stuck to the bottom of her shoe, and she leaned against the prop table and peeled it off. You know, he said, now that Kyle is going to be running the show, technically you and me don't work together anymore. <laughs> she smiled at him and rolled the gaff tape up into a little ball. Short timer, she said, and tossed it at him and walked away. It was the first time that she called him that. The rest of the crew started using it after they met Kyle, once Robert explained that Kyle was shadowing him, trying to learn the show. Hey, short-timer, where do you want these roses, they'd say, or, hey, short-timer, you coming to the bar? It never mattered how he introduced himself. The crew always renamed him to something a little more to their liking. <laughs> they called him Bobby, or Robbie, or Roberto, sometimes Rob, or Bertie, or Bo. A guy in Jacksonville kept calling him Dobie, which nobody in the company ever understood. And for a three-week stint in Chicago, everyone called him Mittens after he showed up to the first day of load-in wearing a pair of bright red mittens that he borrowed from one of the dancers because he left his gloves at the bar the night before. Each city had a different crew, and each crew a different person that Robert worked with. He couldn't count how many had come before Aaron. In Pittsburgh, it was a man named Archie. In Tulsa, an old guy named Jack, who still smoked a pack a day, reeked of nicotine and wheezed when he walked on stage to do the Act One shift. In Boston, it was Patrick. In L.A., it was Steve. In St. Louis, it started out as Travis, but then he got picked up on an outstanding bench warrant and was replaced by Mike. There was Martin, Sarah, Devin, Mickey, Rico, Nicholas, Buddy, Randy, Terrence, there were crew members whose real names he never knew, people who introduced themselves to him as Animal, Crowbar, Nasty, Hambone, Tipsy, Beano, Flintlock, Chili, Kid. Whoever they were, and regardless of whether he liked them, he would learn their names and the names of their children and remember them for the week or two or however long he stayed in town until he went to the next city with the next crew and the next name to be called out on stage to joke around with during the breaks, to keep track of between each cue, to buy beers for when the curtain came down. Kyle walked in right on time, and he noticed the missing flask immediately. <laughs> Tell Kimmy, Robert said. She'll let you into the dressing room. It's probably still in his suit coat. He watched Kyle walk over to stage right, looking for the stage manager. Kyle stopped and talked to some guy who was leaning up against the fly rail, and then Robert heard the two of them laugh, and then Kyle crossed downstage and disappeared from his view. The man at the fly rail waved at Robert, and Robert waved back. There were a lot of people he met on tour whose names he couldn't remember. The guy in Reno who was missing two fingers. The guy in Tucson who made custom knives. The guy in Oakland who set up an espresso machine by the fly rail and kept everybody caffeinated. 
the guy in Louisville who sold moonshine out of the trunk of his car, which Robert bought and then drank with some girl he met in Memphis a week later, waking up in her apartment and stumbling back to his hotel room in the pre-dawn light. There was the flyman in San Diego who promised to take him out sailing, the electrician in Denver that he had gone skiing with, the head carpenter in Phoenix who one night asked Robert if he wanted in on the lottery, and Robert, feeling lucky, took a dollar bill out of his wallet, wrote his name on it with a black sharpie, and dropped it into the brown paper bag along with all the other dollar bills with people's names that the man had collected. <coughs> An hour later, when the head carpenter reached into the bag and pulled Robert's dollar out, the whole local crew quietly booed. The head carpenter handed the bag over and said, you know this means the first round's on you. Robert felt guilty sticking the bartender with all those singles, so he paid the tab with his credit card and for the next few weeks used the dollar bills to buy coffee. Each day, he burned through a couple more names, his favorite being the one that said Mary, where the A had been replaced with a heart. He kept that one for a while, thinking that it was somehow special, but then one night when he was drunk, he gave it away to the bartender as part of the tip. Kyle came back carrying the flask. He set it on top of the prop table and Robert and asked Robert if anyone had ever thought about filling it with real alcohol. Kimmy would blow a gasket if he pulled that one, he said, and besides, Jeffrey's a lush, it wouldn't phase him a bit. He watched Kyle take the pistols out of the safe and made sure that he followed all the safety protocols when he loaded the blanks. Kyle read through his checklist one more time and then asked Robert if he had missed anything. Did you reset Deirdre's umbrella behind the door, Robert asked? Yep. What about Macy's pack of cards? Yeah, I got that too. Then it looks like you're all set. Have a good show. Are you leaving, Kyle asked. No, I'll hang out in the wings once the show starts, but it's all you from here on out, Robert said. He looked around. Everyone was busy. Everyone had a job to do but him. The electricians were just finishing dimmer check. The carpenters were testing the automation. They ran the phony car back and forth in its tracks a couple times. Robert went out into the loading dock hoping he'd bump into Aaron, but she wasn't there. He went downstairs to the green room for a while and then got a cup of coffee and stood in the hallway looking at all the old murals. It was one of those theaters that had commemorative paintings all over the backstage walls from all the acts that had ever played there. Many of the acts were old long before Robert ever set foot in a theater. A chorus line, 42nd Street, Cats, Les Mis, and on and on and on. Each mural, a little box where some painter had replicated the poster, and the cast and crew all signed their names with the same lilting optimism that could be found in a high school yearbook. He walked down the hallway and found the spot where they planned to paint the mural for this show. The painter had just finished outlining the square with tape and was starting to put down a coat of white primer, which Robert could smell from where he stood. He looked at the wall, at the smooth blank lines coming off of the roller, and after a couple of minutes, he heard Kimmy call places over the backstage monitor system. He felt no need to rush back upstairs. Kyle had it under control. Any minute, the orchestra would start to tune. The house lights would fade to black, and in that little moment of darkness, as the rustling audience started to settle, the first note of music would play. The show would begin and it would be as if Robert was never even there. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2013 curator of this program is Stephanie Kalis. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, Mo Preventure, and Steve DeTori. Narrator is Christine Brown. 
and executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.